0: Hi and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kayen Isaacson. This week, it's 3 2, one go with Cosmo Masero, and we're joined by Marshall Hook from Seven News and the Sports Hub. Then Suzanne Morse talks to Carol Gregory, Vice President of Communications and Marketing for the Conservation Law Foundation. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom's talking politics and a little positivity.
1: Okay, let's talk about innovation, particularly on the two posts. California on the west, Massachusetts on the east. New ranking places them one and two in terms of the most innovative states in America. Tell me more
2: about it.
0: So in Bloomberg's annual state innovation index for the second consecutive year, California, Massachusetts took first and second spots. Um, And the ranking is based on weighted metrics, six of them that are weighted equally research and development intensity, productivity, clusters of companies and technology, STEM jobs, residents with degree in science and engineering, and patent activity. Um, And I think uh, my guess is research and development uh, uh, paired together with residents with degrees in science and engineering disciplines is probably what helped catapult Massachusetts to the top. Because of our obviously extraordinary higher education um, system here, yeah,
1: it makes sense. Um, I, not a huge surprise, um, but I think it's, it's, it's great, and, it, and, and, it, and it's great for the Commonwealth um, uh, as an innovation center or center of innovation excellence. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it bodes well for the. Um, industries of strength in the areas of strength and excellence in Massachusetts, not that they are limited to, you know, those areas of STEM and tech and high tech and biotech and, uh um, like um,
0: sciences and,
1: yeah, um, it, it, the, rankings like this and or this topic always, uh, you know, makes me just kind of think out loud that innovation does not have to be limited to technology-related uh, industries and and, and, and developments. You, you can innovate in any field, but, but by and large, that's what we're talking about, right? We're, we're, we're talking about those fields, the, the, the STEM fields, and the things that are driving probably the, the highest quality jobs across the economy.
0: Yeah, and like that are looking to the future. I mean, I think Washington State was uh, number three. And what Washington, California and Massachusetts currently have in in common too right now is that they're all doing work related to COVID. So it's what are these industries that are going to propel us forward? And right now, um, specifically where we are as a society, it's figuring out how to manage this pandemic and get ourselves out of it. So I think while that probably didn't lead to their rankings, I'm guessing the ranking was done before, but it is certainly gives you some idea as to the indicators and, and how these states are kind of thinking when it comes to what is, what's important to be innovating. And right now, a lot of that is life sciences and technology um, and a global pandemic has only brought that to bear even more so.
1: Yeah, if I'm placing bets on on most likely, you know, most likely places or states from a vaccine to emerge from, you got to put Massachusetts right up there, number one, number two in California, and maybe and a few others for sure. Uh, in fact, um, you know, a couple of Massachusetts companies are already well documented in, in the mix, in the running, uh, in the leadership position of trying to. Uh, to develop that vaccine. So, and, and certainly California also. So that's, that's not a surprise. Um, You know what, nothing
0: else. This is just one more feather in the cap of Massachusetts that we can all be proud of.
1: Absolutely. And and with, you know, at times of great challenge, um, uh, rising to meet it, meet the challenge and solve the problem uh, creates um, economic activity. It it creates, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a process through which uh, industries can grow or 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 solutions or treatments or whatever it is in this case uh the the much needed uh global demand for a vaccine so interesting stuff and uh yeah l- l- related to uh certainly related to covid-19 but also a piece of good news for the commonwealth.
0: Right, I'm joined by Marshall Hook from Seven News in the Sports Hub. Marshall, thank you for joining us.
3: Not a problem. Happy to be here.
0: We had some technical difficulties this week, but I'm glad that it has all worked up in our favor. Yes, and, and I
3: figured out they were all my fault. So there you go.
0: <laughs> I'm sure that makes our podcast producers feel much better. So, <laughs>
4: um,
0: so we wanted to have you on to talk about a couple of things. But first up is as Massachusetts economy as the United States economy slowly reopens, uh, depending on where you are. Reopening looks different. There's been a lot of talk and a controversy in some regards about the reopening of, of sports. And when do we get back to, you know, America's favorite pastime and will, will games be played with fans or without fans? And I think, and then trickling down, you know, without high school sports or college sports happening, you know, what does that mean long term for our professional sports? So we just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, well, on the pro sports side, you know, uh, at at obviously working part time for a sports talk radio station, that's made a little more difficult with the absence of sports. Um, But one of the things that we would often talk about from the time that this stuff shut down, what is now I don't know, roughly three months ago, was which one of these sports is going to be back first, right? Which one of the big four of the NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, and the NBA, which one of those sports will be the first to actually play a game? Obviously, the NFL season hasn't yet begun, but you know they're just a few months away, so they're in the running. MLB season hadn't yet begun either, but it sh- we should be midway through it at this point, And for the NBA and the NHL, they both stopped as they were approaching the playoffs. And it's changed. Like, there have been weeks where, like, you know what? The NBA, they're almost back. Look, here we go. MLB is never going to play a game. And then every week it changes. And so if you'd asked me a week ago, I'd say, well, you know, baseball looks like it's not coming back at all. And the NBA is going to be ready to go in a couple weeks. And now, today, it feels like maybe Major League Baseball comes back first. Um, And I think in all of this, there remains a valid question if any of them get back, because I just saw a statistic uh, regarding the NBA, which they're trying to to play their playoffs in their so-called bubble, where all the teams and players are going to be in one space where you know access in and out is restricted. And they had tested somewhere in the area of like 300 of the players for the COVID-19 virus. And somewhere in the middle teens came back positive. And every time that happens, you talk about re-quarantines and re-shutdowns and people being isolated. So there remains a possibility that none of these people come back. And from an economic standpoint, their coming back, even if they play games, is only, I, I guess, like half a victory because they're not going to be doing it with fans. I don't think anyone thinks we're going to see fans watching games anytime soon for any of these sports. And a lot of the economic benefit that these teams reap come obviously from people buying tickets and buying concessions and coming in. So obviously there has been an economic impact to all of these businesses, restaurants, movie theaters, what have you, shutting down. Um, and the sports one is no different. It's just, it seems like the numbers are a lot bigger when you talk about billionaire owners and TV contracts and the salaries that these players get. Um i I don't know who comes back first, and I don't know what it looks like when they do come back
0: and so I had mentioned too kind of the the trickle down so we if you look at pro sports and then you go down a level and we've got college and high school, which it doesn't seem that that is necessarily a priority right now for colleges that are figuring out how to reopen um if this goes on, I mean, I think we all expect to be in some sort of Limbo, let's call it, for the next year or so. Um, what is that like, in your opinion? What does that mean long term if we can't get back to, you know, college and high school sports in the near future?
3: Well, I, I know that uh, with the school guidance that came out in Massachusetts uh, earlier this week, I don't think it specifically addressed high school sports, but I think that it's it's highly unlikely that come the fall you're going to see any of those typical sports, which is you know high school football uh, high school soccer those are two of the the most popular uh fall sports in the in the high school ranks um and football particularly you know those players feed into the college sports uh, the college game and the college game feeds into the pro game and so if you think about it in, in just the terms of the flow of talent and how it works. You're If if high school football isn't happening, then I don't know how the college uh, folks are going to you know, bring in these athletes. If, if they're not playing, where are they going to? They're just going to guess on what they did a year ago or two years ago. And then the same thing is true. I know that the college football, huge money in college football, right? So these mm-hmm. uh, both both for the networks, as well as the colleges themselves. So I know that they're trying very hard to bring them back. But as we've seen, you know, those states that have tried to rush reopening, Florida and Arizona and, you know, Georgia, they're now seeing these spikes that are coming back up. So while there was a lot of talk a a month ago or two months ago about how, oh yeah, no problem, college football is going to be back, I don't know that you're going to be able to see that now. So at some point, you know, if you think about, I mean, it, it's, it sounds bad at some level to put this, but if you just think about it in terms of the 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 assets, the players moving through the system, if they're not coming through the high school system and they're not feeding into the college system, then at some point the pros are going to look at it and go, well, where are we getting our new players to replace the ones who are older, who are retiring and all of that? So I think that there's going to be an impact in that in that way. And it just may take a year or two to to see it uh come all the way through but i also i mean again everything about this disease outside us everything is impacts that we're going to see for years to come
0: yeah so before we switch uh switch topics what sport are you most excited to see come back what's your what, what are you what are you buying for personally
3: well, I mean, I think that uh, I am generally a baseball fan amongst uh, all the other ones. And I do love football as well. But honestly, with the way the baseball players and owners conducted themselves and their negotiations to come back, they have uh, soured me along with lots of other people. Um, Now, at the same time, they've put in some changes for their shortened season that should make the game go faster, which was one of its biggest issues before all of this happened. So I'll be (laughs) intrigued to see that. But I also think that um, NBA and NHL, those are going to dive right into playoffs and playoff sports is always more interesting to watch than regular season sports. So if we can see those sports come back in a playoff format, that'll be great to watch.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I think it would be a nice distraction um, and some new entertainment for people would probably certainly be very welcome. Uh, so hopefully we'll we'll see something come to fruition soon.
3: Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, I, while I don't consider it a big four sport and I don't personally care about it, uh, NASCAR did come back and that made a lot. Of, I mean, that is a hugely popular sport in this country, uh, mm-hmm. at least in certain parts of this country. And they had their um there races coming back there are not people in the in the arenas or whatever they called in the tracks watching it but it's shown that people are really eager for sports to come back they're starting to play some pro golf as well and people are watching that so there's obviously definitely the appetite for sports to return
0: all right well whoever comes back first we'll have to have you back to to analyze and pick it apart
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you yes
0: All right, Marshall, so uh, a big week for you, as well as uh, my three, two, one, go one co- uh, co-host, Cosmo Macero, in municipal elections. You both have won seats this week um, in your towns, as I think you are select board now.
3: Yes, uh, the town of Topsfield at our town meeting just a week ago changed from as I'm probably a hundred other communities in the Commonwealth have at this point, changed from a board of selectmen to a select board. And I am now a member of the select board.
0: Congratulations, sir. Um, And uh, Cosmo was voted this week to, uh, in Belmont. So both winners, which is very exciting, but also it's an interesting time to be in any sort of politics, Um, whether it's, National or local, Um, campaigning, so to speak, looks different. But also when we're looking, if you drill down at the local level, we're looking at like just the stakes seem different now as we are approaching a time where towns and cities are going to be facing tremendous budget cuts and fiscal restraints and furloughs and layoffs and, and, you know, sort of it's a long list. I think that the, you know, well, I would be remiss if I didn't quote Tip O'Neill in all politics is local, but it really is. And particularly at the local level is where so many things happen that directly impact people and their families and their communities in a way that we're not always paying attention to. But for you, I would imagine that looking forward, it might look a little bit different now than you had originally thought when you decided to run. Is that a fair assessment?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, interesting the timing of the shutdown and and the real rise of COVID-19 in terms of at least, you know, the schedule that we were on in Topsfield. Because, for instance, we were pretty heavily through the budget process. Uh, You know, there's a financial committee in town, the FinCom, uh, and they work with the selectmen and all the different departments over months starting... I about the first of the year around there, coming up with a town budget. And so this shutdown hit near the end of that process to the point where they basically had to restart the process because we were going to be looking for a Prop 2.5 override for school funding well it was made pretty clear pretty quickly that this was not the time to be increasing people's property taxes and so that hit all departments across i mean the school numbers the biggest number but it hit all the departments all the way across the, you know the police were looking for a new cruiser and they said well not this year we're not and so it immediately redefined the budget and how we were going to look at spending money, knowing that instead of doing a property tax increase, we were going to try to keep them as level as possible. And so, immediately, when you know money is the overriding thing, but then you have to figure out, well, how does that impact services? And so you know, this is the this is the ongoing work because it's not like oh well we've approved the budget now it's done. You're just going to have to continually massage this throughout the year because we also still don't know the realities. We don't know what kind of money is going to come in from the state, from the federal level, and where all of the sources may be. Um, and so, as the real monies come in, you're going to have to continue to look at that. Uh, aside from that, I, I will say that one of the things you know when we talk about politics. In in general, in this country right now, everything is so divisive, divided on Republican and Democrat. One of the things that I find really refreshing about small town politics is I honestly have no idea what political party most of the people in this town belong to, because you don't you know, when you go and vote for presidents or representatives, senators, it'll say right on there, Democrat or Republican. It doesn't say that on a local town ballot. You're not asked and nobody knows. And so I may be serving with, you know, uh, on a five member select board, there may be two Republicans and uh, I happen to be unenrolled. Democrat. I have no idea because mm-hmm. that level party politics really doesn't you know, trickle all the way down to the local town level. It's really about what's good for this town and our fellow townspeople. And so to that degree, one of the things I love about politics at this very local level is it eliminates the need to discuss the divisiveness of party.
0: Yeah, that's refreshing right now. <laughs> I'm a little envious. Um, and I just, before we before we wrap up, so Cosmo ran in uh, in Belmont, He won his seat in Precinct 5, so congratulations to him. But one of the things he noted is that he campaigned a little bit differently uh, because of the COVID pandemic. Did you feel, did you do the same thing or was it, did you not feel as much of a difference? Again, to your point, because it's a different, the, the politics are different at that level.
3: Well, I know that when I went in uh, planning to do this, I certainly had this kind of group in my head or list of groups that I would go meet, you know, the League of Women Voters, the Council on Aging. I would would go to all these different places and, you know, do the typical meet and greets or just say, hey, I'm going to be sitting down at the bagel bin in downtown Topsfield from this hour to this hour, come down to say hi. All of that stuff was eliminated. So you had to do it differently. Um... You know, so what I was, you know, I, I made as much use of social media as possible. There's a fairly vibrant Residence of Topsfield Facebook page, which sometimes can get a little cesspooly, but, you know, you, you put into it or you get out of it what you put into it. So... That's where I ended up posting a candidate statement. And that's where I was happy to interact with people and, you know, have them ask me questions and I'd give them as good an answer as they could. I did buy signs and I put them up around town. um, But that's pretty much what I was able to do. I offered, you know, to some of these groups that would do Zoom meetings or whatever, I said, I'm happy to drop in and, 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 you know, ask any or, you know, answer any questions or what have you, but they weren't doing a lot of it because they didn't really know how to approach it either. So you didn't really have any choice but to do it differently. Um, And it, it makes me a little bit sad because there were tons of people who I interacted with, for instance, on Facebook who at the polls yesterday when I was standing across the street, they would wave and say, oh, Marshall, it's good to meet you. And I'd be like, well, who are you? And they'd say, oh, I'm, you know, Joe Schmoe. You and I talked on Facebook. And I'd say, oh, yes, of course. But if it had been done normally, then I would have known Joe Schmoe because I would have actually met him and shook his hand and we would have had a conversation. I would have remembered them. So there is that uh, disconnect now because I still haven't met tons of these people in person. And a lot of them waved it and said hi, but also vote by mail was hugely increased. So there were still plenty of people who said that they voted for me, but they didn't do it at the polls where I was standing for eight hours yesterday. So I still haven't met these people. (laughs) So one of the things I'm going to look forward to do when, you know, the world gets back to normal, quote unquote, is to finally meet all these people that I haven't met yet and then do the work post-election that I would have preferred to have done prior to it. And, you know, whatever, it'll be out of order, but it's a 3-year term so I'll have plenty of time to to listen to people's concerns and now I'll be able to act on them immediately rather than say you know what in 2 months I'll see what I can do about that.
0: <laughs> hey and maybe just maybe you'll be able to do it at some point at a high school football game.
3: I'll look forward to that. It'll be fantastic.
0: Thanks Marshall.
3: Thank you.
5: I'm Suzanne Morris, Vice President at O'Neill & Associates, and I am here with my colleague Shakir Gregory. Hey, everyone. And today we are talking to Carol Gregory, Vice President of Communications and Marketing at Conservation Law Foundation. Environmental justice, the idea that racism and inequality impacts the environment that communities of color live in, has become an increasingly important topic within the environmental movement over the last several years. And the intersection of the COVID-19 pandemic with the protests around police brutality have only emphasized the vulnerabilities that Black and Brown people face when it comes to issues like climate change and more. We're talking to Carol today about the environmental movement, environmental justice, climate change, and more. Carol has worked within the environmental movement for more than 20 years, including with Greenpeace and the Audubon Naturalist Society before joining CLF and she is on the board of the Massachusetts Audubon Society and ACE Alternative for Community Environment. Welcome
2: Carol. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
5: Thanks for coming on. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how you became involved with the environmental movement.
2: It's funny. I don't I wouldn't say I grew up as an environmentalist. I did grow up as an activist. I grew up in an activist family. Um, I often joke that my parents were, um, you know, they were kind of practical environmentalists, you know, they reduced, um, they recycled, but it was for economical reasons, certainly not for saving the planet or anything of that nature. But I always, you know, I was always raised uh, about a sense of justice, about standing up for myself and being willing to stand up to the powers that be to stand up for my own rights. And one of the earliest memories I have of my father was him getting arrested, you know, lying down in front of a bulldozer and my mom telling me, your dad's doing that for the future of you and your brother. So that's what I kind of grew up on. I kind of stumbled into environmentalism. Um, so that's what I, uh, we were taking a knee uh, long before it was a thing uh, during the national anthem. So, um, so that's where I kind of came into. When I came to Greenpeace, I knew I wanted to use, um, I was a communications professional. I was leaving um, broadcast journalism career. I knew I wanted to use my communications towards social good. But I think what attracted me initially to Greenpeace was more the approach, the activism, as much as it was the issue. And it was only as, as I was working there and learning more, my first, um, the first topic I was working on issue was really around toxics, you know, working in Cancer Alley and toxins in water and how it was, you know um, – uh, contaminating um, and making uh, brown and black people very sick. So that was one of the first issues I worked on. But then we, I started really getting into the climate and realizing, you know, what, an, what a crisis this was and how the, that, you know, once again, communities of, of, of color were on the front lines of the climate crisis. And I really was all in. I recognized that this was the new civil rights you know, this was the civil rights of, of, of our generation and generations to come. And so it, that was kind of my entry into, and it just went from there. I mean, i worked on many other issues, but I always wanted to come back to um, the environmental issues. I really thought that that was the foundation of everything. And um, when I moved to Boston, what really attracted me to Conservation Law Foundation was the fact that they were doing it on a local level that these were advocates that were fighting for their homes, that were deeply connected with their communities. They knew their legislators. And I just felt that the moving the needle on a regional level had so much impact in a way that, you know, you couldn't on a global and national level.
4: That's amazing. Um, and that, uh, I feel like, um, is a great kind of summary of how there's been a thread, it seems, throughout your life um, uh, of really intertwining Justice with um, the you know the physical landscape and you know the environment around you. So that's a that's a great backstory. I'd yeah, say, no, it,
2: really, it truly it truly is. I mean, when you when you think about the the intersection, I mean, this is really what it is all about. And and I think that the environmental movement is finally starting to understand. That this is a civil right. This is about justice. And I don't think they've always understood that um, from the very beginning. You know, they were, um, you know, there was a very disconnect in how um, the environmental movement even talked about environmental issues, which I think is really problematic. And and really, they they weren't talking about people, they weren't talking about health. You know, and while it's great to save beautiful places, It was was a real disconnect on how it fit into people's everyday lives. And I still think that's a struggle um, with the movement, and that's why the movement continues um, when you look at predominantly – when you look at what I call mainstream environmental groups, which we all know are really white environmental groups, I think there's there's still a struggle there.
4: Yeah. Actually, you – you you may have answered a little bit of my next question there, um, but I was going to ask. <laughs> uh, it seems the biggest environmental issue facing all of us is obviously climate change and so, would you be able to talk a little bit about um, climate change, but viewed through, you know, the prism of environmental justice, given your background? And I know you touched upon it from a messaging perspective, but really, um, I'd love for you to talk more about um, how environmental justice and climate change are really in hand in hand when it comes to the material conditions of folks.
2: So, climate change, absolutely. Um, climate change impacts us all, but it disproportionately impacts communities of color and low income communities. And unfortunately, what has happened is as we're trying to get resolve one of the biggest crises of our lifetime, we have really shut out the very communities that are impacted the most, and that know their communities the most. So I really think that we really have to shift how we're looking at the climate and making sure that we're bringing people to the table who understand their communities. And um, I still think that part of the problem has been that Climate. We've been talking about climate in a very abstract way, and often the, the spokespeople around climate have been um, scientists, and they're not really the best when it comes to explaining things in an accessible way that I understand how this impacts my economy and how this impacts my health. Mm -hmm. And so we really need to shift the narrative, which is why I'm so excited to be working in communications, because I really do think we have to shift the narrative so that people really understand. Because I think when people understand what's happening with their, their climate, everyone's going to want to get involved. But you have to talk to people, not at people, but talk with people.
5: The specific challenges within the environmental movement about talking about environmental justice, what do you see them as? And, you know, if you have thoughts on ways to move past them, it'd be really interesting to
1: hear.
2: I think there is a, you know, as we're seeing, I think one thing that the environmental, environmental groups, mainstream environmental groups, and I want to be clear, mainstream environmental groups are overwhelmingly white. I think the one thing that environmental groups have come to realize is that we do have to speak about the climate crisis as a civil right, as an injustice, and as racism. And it's been a really uncomfortable framing for mainstream groups, I think, up until this point. We need to recognize what it is. We need to recognize that policies have um, discriminated against people of color, low-income communities. We need to recognize that the laws have have, have, have not protected and the agencies haven't protected and that there is systemic racism that has really kept us from really getting solutions to what is happening with climate. Climate has been politicized. And so we really have to dig into that and have some really honest and uncomfortable conversations on how we address that issue in and of itself. But I think one of the first things is to recognize that climate justice, that this is a just, this is an injustice, and that we have to recognize environmental racism. And that's a term that we're just only starting to hear a lot about. Um, the other thing that we really need to address, as I mentioned, is that we need more people at the table and we need more, we need more diverse groups. And we, because, you know, understanding that perspective, people that are on the front lines, we need them working at these groups. And that is something that has not changed in the entire time that I've been working in the environmental movement. It just amazes me how we still struggle with that.
4: Hmm. Um, that's yeah. And that's a great insight. And I think, you know, Tying it back to Massachusetts and the work that you've done, I think one good example of, you know, talking about um, environmental justice and climate justice um, from the perspective of racism and from the perspective of civil rights is the report that CLF issued um, last year. Um, And within it was a survey um, that showed that black residents of Boston feel just less welcome in the seaport neighborhood than their white counterparts. And I'd love for you to talk more about that and how really it supports a lot of this, um, this work that you're doing to really um, work on the messaging and make, make the climate movement accessible. Um, so in what ways do you feel that issues of public access when it comes to the waterfront? Um, in what ways do you feel like there's work to be done in, in, right here in, in Boston and in Massachusetts when it comes to um, environmental justice and climate justice?
2: There's so much work that needs to be done. And when you speak of the seaport, that is just a prime example of gone wrong and a missed opportunity. When I go to the seaport, it's just such a homogenous. I mean, who does feel welcome there? Not only do I not feel welcome there, um, not only am I not seeing um, the diverse cultures that represent Massachusetts and Boston there, Uh, either in the businesses in the business owners and the people that work there, it's extremely white. It's extremely difficult to get there. It's expensive and there's really nothing to draw. And then half the people don't even realize that there is that that's their public space and that that space belongs to all of us. There are no signs that said, this is a, this is a public space. There's no checkerboards or things to invite me to come there and spend that time with family. And I really think that by doing that, the, the seaport has just really, it could be such a vibrant place. It could really spark the economy. It could be so interesting, but it really isn't. And because they've, you know, they've, they've, um, they've, you know, I, I feel that, you know, the planners are looking at the highest bidder, you know, the person that comes in with the highest bid and will relax the rules for you and let you build any way that you want to build. And it's a mess. I mean, do you really want to go, you know, it, when you think about what, the potential there—it's really quite sad, and that's why I'm really glad that CLF is really pushing for not only um, public awareness around the fact that the, this is your, this belongs to you. This is public land, and you have every right to sit there without being harassed by some condo security guard, without being asked why you were there. You have every right to come there with your family, and I'm, you know, I encourage people to um, find out, you know, about the public access, find out what those lands are, go there with your family safely during these COVID times, but go out there, have a picnic, spend some time there and know what your rights are in that area and show up for hearings when developers are trying to build something there. You know, push the city, push the state to really have the seaport become something of an area that we can be proud of where everyone wants to visit from Mattapan, Dorchester, but right now it's being walled off by you know, rich condo owners.
5: Yeah, and I think it is worth just spending a few minutes to talk about how the seaport is an example in real time of how structure helps to keep communities of color out. That these are structural decisions um, that are built into our system that have helped to create a place where black residents of Boston don't feel welcome.
4: And I, I'd love to add to that, too. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's always a focus on, you know, protecting public spaces and from a, like you said, a scientific perspective and discussing things like sea level rise. Um, but in the meantime, just basic access rights are still under threat as well. So, Carol, um, one thing that you touched upon and in, in, in some of your answers is um, about how the environmental movement sometimes focuses in on the scientific aspect of protecting public spaces but there's a justice component to protecting public spaces that has a lot to do with a- a- access so if if you'd like to talk about that, how is it um, how, how does how does your work really kind of combine public access and justice with, obviously resiliency in climate science.
2: I think that it's all intersectional. You can't really talk about one without the other. You can't talk about access to public spaces that won't be there because there's been no work to really make sure that these spaces are protected and prepared for a changing climate. So I think that one thing that, you know, CLF is looking at everything very holistically. We're not just looking about, we're looking at making sure that people are aware of their rights and have access to their public spaces. We're making sure that those laws are enforced, um, you know, in, because it is the law that this that this Boston Harbor belongs to all the people. And we're also making sure that we're that whatever building is happening has a climate resilience plan. How are you planning for sea level rise? How are you building to make sure that those spaces are protected? And I think that you can't do one without the other. It all is one big ball. You have to look at, there's. It, you can't silo it out. It, it is a justice issue you know, this is a civil rights issue. It is about having, it's about all people having the right to be and feel welcome and safe in these public spaces. It's about building a seaport that's vibrant, that reflects the diverse cultures of Boston, the greater Boston area and throughout Massachusetts. And it's about ensuring that they will be here for generations to come. And right now, none of that is happening.
5: So, Carol Gregory, is there anything we missed
2: in this conversation? I think it's just to reiterate just how vitally important this is and how important it is for people to really take the time to um, know what's going on in your spaces, to know what your rights are, to sign the petition, to to really push our leaders to to, to build a seaport, to build a, a waterfront that we all not only have access to, but that we can actually be proud of and have a proud legacy, we cleaned up this Boston Harbor, and now let's take it to the next level of making it a place where we can all live, swim, play, work, and that it reflects not just rich white people, but all of us.
6: Two minutes with Guyana Tom. Like Guyana.
0: Are you changing the name?
6: I am. I am. It's because you have as much to offer as I do, and I think it's. I, I think. I think we ought to change the name to invite you in. And
0: I know, but it, the alliteration works better without my name.
6: The alliteration works better without your name.
0: Two minutes. Uh, with Tom to
6: it's alliterative. There's no question about that. <laughs> okay. All right. It's good to talk to you. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you, sir?
6: It's. it's I think uh 14th week in remote doing two minutes with Tom, and it's nice to be with you. And um, and we're working remotely, as I said, and we're on two ends of the globe, And but we're paying attention to what's going on across America. On, on the one hand, you know, we've got a very serious discussion going on about race and racism in America and what we should be doing about it. And I think uh, everybody's concluded one thing. Everybody of sound mind has concluded one thing, we ought to be listening. Everybody ought to be listening. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a wonderful benefit to have the First Amendment right of free speech. But people often hear different things when people speak, and so listening very closely is really very important. And uh, and and I think that's going on in this country and across America. Um, and and I think it's very healthy for the country. On the other hand, I'm feeling pretty good about politics in this country too. My candidate, Joe Biden, the presidential designee for for the Democratic Party, um, is looking in all the pivotal states that that really make a difference as far as the as far as the the uh, delegate vote is concerned, um, and the electoral vote is concerned. Excuse me, is 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 really decidedly hopping over to to Biden, and I and I think that's the case in very large part because of the lack of leadership during the course of the pandemic uh, virus that has just kind of stilled the country. And again, we see a surge in the Sunbelt. We have more numbers of people with the virus being contracted every single day than we've had in the height of, you know, what was going on in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, in the epicenter a month ago. And it's, it's dangerous, it's frightening. And it's, uh, and to have a leader go into a closed auditorium with seven or 8,000 people unmasked it's not the leadership America requires today?
0: Seven or eight thousand, which was a number, by the way, he was very disappointed with. So he was yeah, expecting he more. Let me ask you a question. So yes. polls are trending in the direction of Biden. I think you know there are some that are saying fourteen points um, ahead of, of Trump, which is a positive uh, indicator. However, after after the two thousand sixteen election. Yep. Should we be giving as much credence to polls as we once did? Like I believe that we still need to be incredibly cautious. Um, while the polls in two thousand sixteen were closer together um, in many at many points, I think a lot of people took Hillary Clinton's lead for granted um, and assumed that we were that was the direction we were going. Um, and essentially every poll had her winning. What are your thoughts on that? Do you?
6: I, I think I think to a degree, there there is some there is some element and some percentage of people that will tell a pollster, uh, give a pollster wrong information, or give the pollster the information they think the pollster is looking for. But I think it's a very small percentage of people, um, and that's why they'll say there's a, there's an error rate plus or minus three and a half or four percent, depending mm-hmm. on the number mm-hmm. of people who have been interviewed for the poll. Um, and so, yeah, sure, I think it exists, but I don't think it's in the vast numbers. And so when I see trend lines across sunbelt states, the, the pivotal you know, states that are purple, neither blue nor red, trending state after state after state for Trump, for Biden, by as, by as few as seven points in some states and as many as 13 points in others, those are trend lines that I think are probably unmistakable um and, and that's really why i'm feeling pretty good about his chances god america needs leadership and, and it just doesn't need negativism where people are fed you know against each other uh in a state divided not united um and i think america has wrung its hands in a collective in, in a collective way and said you know enough is enough it's time again for change they thought it was changed four years ago and look what they got and I and I think it's disheartened the majority of people across this country.
0: But on a, a what are what are we waiting for? How do you you always tell us at the end?
6: What are we waiting for? We're waiting for a brighter day. There and it is. it's going to come.
0: <laughs> and it's going
6: to come. We're waiting for a brighter day. And I guarantee you, I don't know how when or how or, or the way it's going to come, but but it will come. That's a guarantee. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Diane. You're always It's always a joy to talk to you.
0: On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA on Air is produced and edited by Ashley Locken and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week.